Welcome to Acre Interview, I'm Mike and your host, and in this episode we chat with former Tornado GR4 nav, Kev Gatland. In the first half we talk about Kev's early beginnings in aviation, being selected to be a nav on the Tornado GR4, and his involvement with the RAF 100 fly pass that happened in 2018. Thank you and enjoy. So Kev, when did you first become interested in aviation? Uh, you know, I was pretty young, actually. Um, I, I think I'd always had a general interest, even from sort of my single digit years. Uh, and it, But it wasn't really until I got to uh, probably about 12 or 13 or so where, where I really, really thought, you know, what, aviation and flying, it feels like it's in my blood. You know, my, my dad was a, was a keen advocate of the, of, the, of the air shows, so we used to spend you know, not excessive amounts, but we used to spend a fair time, you know, going to two or three sort of air shows a year. And I absolutely loved it. And and for me, it was then a decision of, do I want to go into the military perspective or, or do I want to go to the civil route? route, route. And um, I think the decision was really made for me when, when I looked at sort of the costs involved, if you're self-financed into yeah, civilian street was excessive, huge amounts of money um, with, with no guarantee for a job. Uh, pretty pertinent what's going on right now uh, or, or the military which was um w- which was obviously a, a, a shot at maybe getting onto fast jets and, and and of course as a young kid fast jets were the things that i really really wanted to go 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 towards uh, and plus i i'd always had that um nostalgic view i think generated from the old battle of britain films and things like that of of the air force and uh, and, and, and so for me it became a, a pretty early obsession as to to getting into the air force and, and hopefully getting onto onto the flying side and ideally fast jets. Absolutely. So what year did you join the RAF and did you go in to apply as a nav or did you want to go in as a pilot? Yeah, so I, I wanted I, I wanted to be a pilot, you know, and that was my my, my dream and um, it all seemed to be it all seemed to be going up, you know, fine up until when they started looking at eyesight and it was the eyesight bit that let me down. Right. Uh, so at the time I think <clears throat> even at the flying scholarship stage when I was 16, 17 or so, um, my eyesight wasn't quite up to the level that they wanted. Um, so I kind of knew early on that, that was probably not going to be the case, uh, but it passed the aperture or the, 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 uh, the requirements to be a navigator as it was at the time. So, um, yeah, I, I, I kind of went through, uh, got the, got the letter saying, yep, we're accepted and, and you can join as a navigator. And, uh, and was very happy. Um, you know, again, early years, I always, you know, thought it would be it would be awesome if I could transfer across, you know, and try and get that pilot crossover, which I know had happened for some people in the years previous. But but at that time, you know, my early career, that that just wasn't an option. So uh, so you know, settled down into the role of being a navigator, and, and and frankly, thoroughly thoroughly loved it. Absolutely brilliant career. Uh, even though I didn't actually have my hands on throttle and stick, so to speak. <laughs> Brilliant. So tell us some of the aircraft you started training on and how, like, what was the difference bec- uh, between you know, pilot training and nav training? Were you separate at this point? Yeah, so uh, we did our officer training first and foremost, uh, that six months at Cranwell, and then from there, really, everyone split out. Uh, we did a bit of holding, so between starting flying training, we, we went off and I held for three months at Lucas, which is great, holding with Treble One Squadron for a while. Uh, and then back, uh, and then we were very separate. So the pilots went off and did their courses, uh, and we were back to Cranwell flying on the Grob Tutor, relatively new at the time. And uh, I think we started off with a course of 10, 12, something like that. 
um, but probably about 10, I think it was. And, um, and yeah, spent quite a few months there before hopping across to the, the, the Tucano as we started going through the, you know, going faster, you know, through, through the skies and then back to Cranwell after that for a bit of time on the, the Domini. Um, and that was really split into to two halves in terms of the, the, the first bit of it was the medium level work and systems and radar. And then from that point, we were then split again into whether you went into the sort of low level fast jet route um, or, um, or or off onto the sort of the multi-engine route. So we then took the Domini down, the little HS-125 down to the low level environment and um, and really practiced some of the skills we'd need with, with kit management there uh, before progressing onto the Hawk and then, then again split into whether we're going F3 or GR4. Uh, but the pilots had a very separate route, so they were all off at uh, where there's Linton News for the Tucano and then across the valley for, uh, for, for, for the Hawk side of stuff. And then we kind of met up again with them, although we were you know, phased differently, but met up again with them at the OCU, so the conversion unit up at Lossiemouth. Um, and that was really the first time we'd flown with ab initio pilots, you know, when we got back together on, uh, on the OCU. So, yeah, a, a great sort of journey, but very different to separate to the, to, to the pilot side of stuff. Absolutely. And then you got obviously posted to the mighty GR4. And um, what were your first thoughts of the aircraft? Uh, in- incredible. I still remember that first ever sortie where, um, where I was flying with a chap called John Nixon. Lenny Nixon was the display, display pilot for that year because yeah. 15 obviously did the display. Um, and sat in the back, uh, and, and as you know, the, the, the afterburners were lit and we thundered down the runway, airborne, gear up. I just remember feeling under my mask, I had this huge smile. And looking over left and right and just seeing the air intakes uh, either side of me as we sort of got faster and faster and uh, you know we, we took off on runway two three we did what we call the tame departure which sort of took us all the way around uh, sort of the back of Elgin and then out and then in, into the range for a familiarization visit uh, and just j- just feeling this most incredible feeling as we're zipping along at 420 knots and speeding up to sort of 500 into uh, in, into the range and you know a couple of hundred feet uh, and then into a low-level route, and I don't think I stopped grinning from ear to ear. I don't think I did anything useful other than grin ear to ear and, uh, <laughs> and enjoy the trip. But um, yeah, yeah, absolutely incredible, um, and you know, incredibly well prepared with the simulator that they had up there. And and of course, you you you're putting together all of the various elements from from all of the um, the training programs. You know, the, the systems management from the Domini, the, the visual aspects you know from the hawk and the like and all of the different sort of cycles work programs that you go through and, and building it all into one um to sort of operate that gr4 as, as as one you know with with the pilot flying it so yeah incredible incredible feeling yeah what was the environment for a nav in the cockpit um in, in tornado it was surprisingly spacious so we had a lot of space um you know with within the aircraft and um, especially in compared to, you know, earlier, you know, the Hawk and, and, and Tucano. Um, a huge amount of it, of course, when you're at low level was focused on lookout, radar management. Uh, and then as you went into the attack areas, obviously your weapons, uh, weapons management, self-defense equipment management and the like. And of course, over the years, that sort of environment changed a lot because we went from being a predominantly low level, you know, dumb weapon uh, aircraft uh, all, all the way through to, to the latest where it was all very you know smart weapons laser guided gps guided stuff uh, targeting pod work all, all up at 15 to, to sort of 20,000 feet so, so it, it was a huge shift in terms of our, our work patterns and what sort of things we needed to do but you know very comfortable um, 
spacious like i said uh it, it was it, it was a it genuinely a sort of joy to be in the in in the cockpit and uh old you know outdated in in some respects in in terms of um in in terms of comparisons to to some of the you know, latest stuff um but you know the the software was regularly updated the weapon systems were obviously you know a lot of them are brand new and state-of-the-art certainly in the later years of the gr4 so you ended up being able to keep up you know with with what else was going on around you of course as soon as you move into typhoon and f-35 and, and the latest stuff it's you know it's a it, it, they're different worlds they're incomparable but at the time you know we um you know we, we we did the job that we we needed to do and we we did it very well and yeah you mentioned then obviously the gr4 got upgraded uh, as the years went by but so like did you have to have ground school each time it got upgraded or systems was getting upgraded uh, and if so like how long would that take you to go up to speed it, it really depended uh, we used to get a soft change every year and when we say a software change it, it was it was more like a, a, a small upgrade generally so uh, but you know sometimes there'll be some really really significant changes to how the weapon systems say were mechanized or or how the new information may be presented to you uh, and very often and, and thankfully the simulator was updated before the aircraft got updated mm-hmm. um, so we had the benefit of the month or so before the aircraft would get the new software update we could go and you know try out all the new stuff and and um and, and understand exactly what the differences were uh, and within that the weapons instructors would be going through uh you know the changes so we get regular briefs on 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 how this new stuff was was mechanized there was also you know paperwork that, that everyone would take away and just just read so um it, it it never really caused any problems but i think that was you know the amount of um amount of information and and the, the fact that you could practice beforehand and look at the differences uh, were were great and it was a pain sometimes you know because you'd have the simulator operating in a different different software load to the real jets so you're getting the real jet after being in the sim for a few times you'd be like, ah it works the old one <laughs> um but but again never really caused any problems and it, it just kind of came down to the you know bit of self-reading and and if there were any sort of challenging bits a lot of the weapons instructors or electronic warfare instructors or, or whatever on the squadron would would be your first point of contact to uh, to talk to so what was your first operational squadron and was this a squadron you wanted to get posted to at that time yeah so i went to 12 squadron um who, who incidentally the the boss of that uh, right at the very end of my time is now the current chief of the air staff um mike wigston mm-hmm. um and and, and I wanted to stay up at Lossie because I you know, absolutely loved it. I thought it was a really, really great place to be. And 12 at the time was was a fantastic squadron. Like they all were, but they were a fantastic squadron to be on. Um, so so for me, it was a it was a dream. You know, I've moved a couple of hundred feet from 15 across the you know into the Has site that 12 12 was based at, and um, and had a whale of a time. I spent quite a few years. I think I was up up in Lossie Mouth for probably six or so years or six to eight years i think it was um and and from there went to to back to 15 for a bit and then on 617 so um yeah but 12 great squadron and um and sort of spent pretty much three years almost to the day there yeah what were the best and worst points of operating the gr4 in your experience look i think that some of the best bits were were the crew environment you know it was it was really really good to be able to um you know fly with someone obviously as a navigator it'd be pretty difficult to fly by yourself <laughs> but the ability operationally to be able to talk through some of the complexities of of, of say the rules of engagement um the legal aspects of, of what you may be doing uh, and be able to have someone that you're able to to discuss that with in cockpit 
you know, the, the, the jet was very capable. Uh, it's old, but, you know, the weapon systems uh, and the integration of the software was really good. And, um, uh, 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 and I think that combined meant, meant the jet, you know, remained, you know, very, very potent strike platform right up until the very end. I suppose that, you know, the, the, the challenges of operating the GR4 was that it was designed as a low level bomber. It was never designed to be up at height. So, you know, packed full of fuel, packed full of, um, of, of munitions underneath and the like. It, it, it was never going to go particularly high. And, you know, you'd struggle to get above 25,000 feet in the desert, you know, the heat of the desert when, when you're fully loaded sort of thing. Um, and of course, compared to things like a typhoon or you know, some of the later generation aircraft, things like the maneuverability were, were, were pretty poor. But again, you know, for the role that we were doing, it, it didn't really matter. Uh, and we were able to accomplish uh, accomplish everything that we, we, were, we sort of set out to do. And then you also did a, a QWI course. Tell us about that and how it came about. Yeah, so uh, probably a pinnacle of our of where you could get to in terms of your flying side was the, the weapons course and um and that was a six-month course again hosted back on uh, 15 squadrons the conversion unit uh, and that was really an application process that you went through um a, an assessment of your flying ability um or your navigator ability and um and then then you were selected for the course and along with uh, i think there was three pilots three navs online um and then went through that and and, and popped out at the end as a as a qualified weapons instructor uh, super challenging you know the the levels of knowledge and experience uh, that uh, that you needed to sort of get successfully through the course uh, were 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 high you know you needed to be a a, a true expert in the, the tactical application of the platform in all the weapon systems in, in the software and, and all of the nuances complexities to the point where you could explain almost anything to anybody else in your squadron and of course as you went back to the squadron then you were that first point of contact for everyone to um, you know when new things came along so it'd be new software or new weapons or an upgrade or something you know you'd be uh, you, you'd be the first person that you know, the squadron members would come to and you know everyone from the boss of the squadron down to the junior member sort of relied on you to get it right and, and you know taking that then to the operational side you give a lot of the briefs read all of the documents first and, and really try and get a good grip of it so when the questions did flow uh, you'd be able to answer answer them and if you couldn't then you know you knew exactly where to find the answers. So was it a, a equivalent to, I guess, uh, the US Navy Top Gun course? To an extent, I'd say, yeah, to an extent. It's, um, I, I suppose, in terms of it being the, the, the pinnacle of, of professional achievement was was getting onto the weapons instructor course. So so similar. Obviously, we did a very limited amount of sort of air combat in, in the GR4, but I guess the F3 course would, would do, a, do a significant amount more. But in terms of professional standing, it was equivalent. And, and of course, a lot of this as well was, was ensuring that, you know, you fully understood the integration of your platform and, and Tornado into wider, you know, sort of composite air operations or Cameos, as we call them. And, and you also understand all the other aircraft out there and their capabilities and and their limitations as well, so you can sort of try and fill the gaps when you're in in, in big exercises of, of what's going on. Absolutely. And obviously, we're going to come on to uh, more of your tornado flying later. But uh, what squadrons were you posted to uh, over your flying career? Yeah, so I started on 12, and then went back to 15, did the weapons course, and, and also did some instructor time there as well. And then then 617 for a little while. Uh, and then after that, I was promoted, moved south, um, and spent a bit of time in a desk job before going to Marham, and then. On to 31. Um, 31 was my sort of final operational squadron, and then I spent quite a bit of time in the uh, sort of running the Tornado Standards um, unit. 
uh, and, uh, and and then really finished my career within the headquarters side. So a, a, a fair spread of the squadron. So it was uh, it was it was good, really good to to be be on them all. But uh, yeah, we're here to talk about that. Obviously, the amazing uh, RAF 100 fly past in 2018. Yeah, you were very involved in this uh, so can you tell us about from start to finish what your involvement was yeah so um I, i'd only so i just started uh in the in the tornado headquarters as the chief of staff there and um like a lot of these things they you know the the, the edict comes down that's, that something like this is going to happen and, and it fell into the really the one group which is obviously tornado headquarters was part of uh, and then within that it sort of flowed further down into can someone in the tornado headquarters sort of take this on? So my my boss were, at that point, uh, who's a tornado force commander, said, "Yep, no problems at all." And he came to me and said, "Would you like to, uh, to to have a look at this and get involved in this?" I immediately said yes, and then thought, "Oh crikey, now this is this is <laughs> big." And um, we'd done a little bit of work with a chap called Tom Benson as well on the, on the previous Queen's birthday fly past. We had a bit of an understanding of, of what what we needed to do to put together uh, this event. Fairly soon after that, um, Steve then got um, moved into a into a staff role. So I was kind of left with left holding the baby sort of thing, and um, uh, and, and and needed to sort of pull it all together from there. But um, very very well supported in terms of my 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 one ups, two ups, and um, you know ultimately reporting uh, eventually through the senior air staff officer a chap called Johnny Morton, um, and then into Jerry Mayhew, who was uh, AOC One Group at the time, and he then became the senior sort of senior responsible owner for the whole fly path. So really reporting directly to him for everything, um, and then it just it, it just kind of grew in terms of the first six months. Really was was all about just just pulling together the con, con, you know the conception of the whole thing and. Um, you know how many people how many aircraft we wanted to get involved what sort of fate formations were going to look like and and the like um and 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 really spreading the tentacles out to all the different um areas that needed to be needed to be engaged you know air traffic control obviously but not just air traffic control from the military side but the civilian side uh, and and of course because it goes through central london uh, it's a huge impact with with london heathrow maybe london city potentially gatwick so really really early engagement in those sort of days with uh, with in those early days with the CAA because uh, as it turned out we needed to shut shut Heathrow down for about 20 minutes which when you got aircraft landing and taking off with the regularity that they were then um, then that was that was a you know fairly large uh, uh, piece of disruption for them um, yeah so it was a, a real great privilege to to sort of get involved in that um, right from the very start and my, my role really continued through the initial planning um, and then just ensuring the coordination of all, every single part of the fly pass kind of came together to to the successful conclusion at the end. Uh, and then within that, it was gathering a small team. So there was a, a couple of couple of aircrew guys, um, Matt Axel and Mo Abdullah, who were a Tornado pilot and nav on 31. Uh, and they did a huge amount of the sort of the tactical planning uh, to bring all of the individual elements together. And then there was um, Lorraine Hawthorne and Mel Young who were working in the air traffic control side of stuff. And they did a huge amount of work just making sure that all of the different air traffic controllers were, were aligned. I think we had something like on the day 50 frequencies that we were using across the whole flight. So, you know, across military and civilian controllers. So the air traffic plan and the, and, and the you know, the, the, the air crew plan needed to be absolutely aligned. And, and part of my role was just making sure all those various elements were kept together. 
uh, right at the very start, we had a list of different ideas, and they literally came through on a PowerPoint slide um, you know, as to what, what, say, the centerpiece was going to look like. Um, and that that had come through from from on high, and there were various options. Uh, again, the the book goes into a lot of the options and how they were all potentially laid out. Um, you know, so the the obvious one was something like you know the hundred that we saw, but we could have that in different shapes with different formations of aircraft, uh, hawks, tornadoes, and typhoons, or all typhoons, or all hawks. You know, all the different connotations of it. There there was an option of maybe drawing an RAF in the sky. Um, you okay. know, so. So it actually says RAF uh, rather than um, rather than 100, and there are also some other things like what just about you know some large diamond 16s, which I know the Harriers have done. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, um, those big formations, you know, we we put together and then sent them up, and they got agreed. The the other formations really was just I just sat down and and kind of sketched out a few different thoughts and ideas as to what um, what the formations could look like. And then really once we kind of come up with that plan, sent them out to the different formations for, for their agreement. And and on the whole, most people were pretty happy. I think the BBMF one, yeah, changed a little bit. Um, the helicopters we changed around a, a few times. Um, but ultimately, there's only so many ways you can put certain amounts of aircraft. And, and a lot of it was decided on... Um, the size of formations based on how big the force was. So, right. you know, we knew the typhoons, for example, could do a very big formation. So they were an obvious one for the for the centerpiece. We we thought, well, there's you know not a chance we're going to get more than seven or eight tornadoes. So that that kind of put itself into a couple of particular formations. You know, we've got nine hawks. Well, a diamond nine is a standard sort of formation that we can fly. So some of the some of the formations just lent itself to. To, to the amount of aircraft that we're going to have available and yeah so like you mentioned like obviously london and the the civilian operators air, air traffic control how much um integration was there during the planning with the civil side yeah so um a, a lot to be honest we we had numerous meetings with uh, with the caa down at london heathrow because ultimately they they needed the early engagement from us to work out how long they would need to shut operations down so they could go to their, the airlines and, and ask them, you know, and, and, and to put that into their schedule. Um, and also to try and build into the plan so it's it's least, the, the least possible disruption. Uh, likewise, we had um, a couple of chaps sat within this within the uh, sort of CAA, uh, Rob Gratton and uh, Matt Lee, and they, they did a lot of the airspace coordinate, coordination and airspace plan. So we kind of came up and drew what we wanted and they went and put it into sort of statute and, and got it all approved through the Department of Transport and, and all the rest of it uh, and, and all up to sort of ministerial level. Um, and, and so it was a it was a constant back and forth as we changed the plan and we wanted slight adaptations to it. We, we were engaging with all these people constantly and, and we had, you know, from the air traffic side, military and civilian uh, controllers sat next to each other on the day, so, oh, okay. uh, so they okay. were able to talk to each other and make sure that it was all all um, all aligned. And some of the earlier lessons we'd we'd had from years previous were that, you know, air traffic was absolutely critical to the plan. I mean, despite the banter that goes on between air traffic and air crew, but uh, you know, mm -hmm. the, the reality is is that for us for a plan of that size to safely come together, f flow through London with only 30 seconds between each formation. And then most importantly, to egress all those formations safely, deconflict them apart, especially if the weather was bad, where they then needed to climb up to height to go back to their various bases. You know, air traffic needed to be not only brought into the plan, but have been integral to the planning of it um, so that it was sort of safe by design from the uh, from the outset. 
Um, so yeah, it's a huge amount, constant. Yeah, because obviously there must have been yeah a fair few uh, redundancy plans in place. Because did it was there any hiccups on the day? Yeah, on the day, thankfully, no. Um, it, it went surprisingly well. Um, the interestingly, we we had had lots of contingency plans for for having fewer than a hundred aircraft. You know, if we, if we you know we built in a lot of extra. Um, uh, options if, if you know because we thought that the, one of the biggest likelihoods is that we're going to run out of or we're going to be 99 or 98 aircraft on the day and that'll be that'll be rather embarrassing so <laughs> we end up having an additional c-130 in there um a, a couple of extra tornadoes a few more helicopters but of course depending on what um uh what, what aircraft dropped out we couldn't necessarily get um uh, get get every single aircraft sort of you know one for one replaced but actually, as it turned out on the day, we ha- we did have a hundred, and and when I routed that sort of almost surprised, like yeah, everyone's up, and we've got all the spares up as well. Um, the uh, the the SRO, so Jerry Mayhew, went away, had to think about it, and came back, so sort of send the send send the spares as well, and we 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 were able to add in the the two additional tornadoes and the additional C-130, um, as we practiced those formations with with the, the additional elements of them in those those positions, and so ended up with 103. Uh, which was great, but uh, that was almost a, a bit of a, uh, you know, the, the contingency plan was actually able to be used on the day to give us in excess of the uh, of the hundred that we had planned, which was hugely surprising, but 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 awesome for everyone involved. So, what was the feedback like from your family, friends, and also the public from this uh, flyover, flypath? Sorry. Yeah, it it was more than I could ever imagine. Um, you know the the first indication i think for us on the site because myself and and uh, and and the team arrived uh in in london we were we were in a vantage point just opposite uh, horse guards parade really to and that was our yeah. command center so we we're in london watching it rather than being part of the fly pass and coordinating all the different elements that we needed to to make were you know make make sure we're there in order to give it a go and um <clears throat> you know you can imagine i I'm inside the building at the early part of the morning um, and, and as we were approaching the sort of the time that everything's coming together. And it wasn't until I think someone had an iPad on the table as the BBC were doing live filming and the like. And, and I just caught a glimpse of of the view down the mall, and it was absolutely packed. I'd never seen it as busy, you know, ever before. And, um, and and when we walked then outside later, we could see people on the roofs of the buildings, the, the you know, Trafalgar Square had come to a standstill, uh, the bridges were full of people. Um, and you could hear then as the aircraft kind of came over and flew down the mall, as the first ones approached, um, and certainly when the, the 22 typhoons uh, flew right. down, the, you could hear the, the noise of the crowd, uh, even from the, you know, the the half mile or quarter of a mile you know, distance that we were away from it all um so it, it was an incredible feeling to be sort of part of that and um and and, and everything to work out on the day um you know obviously as you can imagine a huge amount of text messages and, and phone calls and 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 i think it was you know the response seemed to be fantastic you know i think everyone was very pleased with with the spectacle that was put on and you know all credit to the engineers that got all those aircraft um up on the day because these guys don't get um, they don't get the credit I think sometimes that they deserve because the reality is is these guys were working for weeks <laughs> prior to not only get the aircraft all ready and uh, you know for the practice events which we had to put together but 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 making sure all those spares are ready everything's sorted you know you know the spare aircraft the, the spare parts they might need on the day the manning schedules 
uh, such that you know the crews are able to hop in and then and do the do the pilot stuff with their throttles and sticks to make sure that um, you know that, that the formations looked as good as they were. So uh, an incredible team effort, uh, and I think everyone was incredibly proud of, of of everything that they did and saw on the day. Absolutely, and you probably have many, but there might be one that sticks out in your mind here. But do you have a, a memorable uh, moment while planning or the execution of the fly past uh, personally for you? I think the, um, the the most memorable memorable piece for me on the day certainly was were the typhoons uh, and you know coming from a GR4 man. Um, oh. but, <laughs> yeah, I mean 44 EJ200 engines all in that sort of that synchronous roar as they're going down. It, it, you know, I'll never never be able to experience sort of that 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 feeling again. You feel the rumble through your chest. You know, you're, you're hearing the, the the aircraft in the backdrop of that. You can also hear the crowds and and, and how they're reacting to it. Um, you know, it it brought a it brought a bit of a tear to my eye, if I'm honest. You know, it was it was really really emotional because it also felt like the end of a long uh, or an 18 month sort of planning cycle. Although we did have Fairford, uh, which we put on a a 50 aircraft fly past well three days later. But for me, that was probably the most uh, the most incredible moment of it all. I think earlier on in the planning, it, it was just because it was so sort of constant, I suppose there was always something going on. Uh, but I still remember trying to get you know the, all the briefing stuff sorted out, and uh, we had a, a a great millennial who was uh, who was much better at IT and uh, computer <laughs> systems and stuff than I am. A chap called Kieran, he did a great job trying to get you know the the computers up and running so we could showcase you know um, on big screens you know, how this is all going to work to to the crews and and, and ultimately to uh, to Jerry May who was going to sort of sign off on it and say yeah I'm happy I'm you know I'm happy this is safe. Um, but but I think it's just that ongoing realization of that this big plan is just is just gathering steam and it's 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 kind of coming together from ultimately what started of of a, of a bunch of PowerPoint slides and a few ideas. So yeah, ongoing really. Absolutely, and it was incredible to see. So thank you for you know being involved in that and uh, you know showcasing the REF and all her might. But you're also involved in a, a couple of other like flyovers. Can you tell us about this? Um, yeah, so uh, I, I guess you're referring to the, the Riat fly past. Riat, uh, yeah, yeah, the 70th yeah. and was it 75th as well or something? Uh, 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 yes, yes. So, um, well, three days after that, the RF100 one, we, we did uh, we did effectively the same again, although it was half the size and it was certainly planned for, for, for Fairford. Um, and then, yeah, the, the, the year later or so, we we look, you know we put together, I put together the, um, the, the D-Day 75 fly past at south uh, at southampton yeah, and um, and uh and the uh, sorry Ports, portsmouth Southampton, wasn't it i think yes yeah, it was southampton yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, and then the the uh, nato 70th at uh, at fairford as well again the, the the nato one was a very different beast it was it was inter- you know really international so a lot of the communication was challenging um, purely because you're dealing with now multiple people in different countries, um, you, you know, and then trying to get everyone to, to come together. So difficult to do, you know, the, the standard ways that, that we've done it before uh, and, and and be able to use the same systems and the same you know, planning systems that we have within the Air Force. But again, that was a, a great experience bringing all that together. Uh, and then the, the D-Day 75th one was was another absolutely amazing experience. Um and again, integrated quite heavily with the BBC and their their planning and their filming, and and almost seeing, 
the fascinating bit about that was seeing then how the BBC put productions together for things like that and um, through us that with the production director and and there was a lot of integration of the timings because you know whilst they have timings they're a little bit more flexible than our um, they're, they're now plus or minus five seconds and certainly when aircraft start leaving the holds you know we, we can say once they've left the hold they will be here at, at this time and they you know once they leave a hold you can't just delay them by 30 seconds or a minute they're, they're coming and that's it at that particular time you, you can delay them in the holds by a minute or two minutes if necessary so there's that finite period of time which i think was in the order of about 15 20 minutes where the aircraft had left the holds and and they were coming inbound so bbc and all of your bits that that better be on time because if not you could end up in the aircraft the wrong place and um yeah. something's happening when it wasn't meant to happen and you know when you're operating down to to cruise trying to fly within plus or minus five seconds there's there's just not a huge um, scope for error but but thankfully it was it was pretty much there or thereabouts which was which is great